0: Hi, this is Breaking Brave, and I'm Marilyn Barefoot. I am thrilled today to introduce you to my guest, Marissa Stapley. Marissa is a super talented Canadian author who has just released her fourth book entitled Lucky. Lucky is a gifted and kind of complex character who has to learn how to be both independent and honest before her luck literally runs out. Marissa talks about her brand new gig, which is becoming a screenwriter under the tutelage of producer Carlton Cuse. Marissa comes from such a long line of strong, brave women. I'm so, so thrilled to have her with me, and I can't wait for you to meet her. Here she is. I am thrilled to be chatting with the one, the only, Marissa Stapley. Marissa has just launched on April the 6th her new book called Lucky. What if you had the winning ticket that would change your life forever, but you couldn't cash it? Welcome, Marissa. It's great to have you on Breaking Brave. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. This book is a gem. Thank you. I I'd like to think of myself as a reading freak. I've been a bookworm all my life as long as I can remember back to the days when in elementary school we had this little animal called the bookmobile that would come along Mm -hmm. and this book is just beautiful. I couldn't put it down like literally falling asleep in bed with it on top of me. I didn't want to put it down. Let's talk about what your inspiration was for this book. I think I know, but I'd like to hear your story of how you were inspired to write this book.
1: So, there were a few things that happened. I was actually working on another novel at the time, and all of my novels have multiple characters, multiple POVs. Um it's I have this notebook. I'm almost through it. It's a really big notebook, and I've used it for every single one of my books where I just suddenly give up on the screen and I just have to like plot out with marker and pen and where the hell is everyone going and what are they thinking and how do I line their stories up? And I had another one like that, and I was planning it, and I was writing it, and my life got complicated. My mom got sick, and I was I was overwhelmed by these characters, and they had there's darkness. I hope I can get to this book again. I've been thinking about it, but it is dark. It's a dark, complicated story, and I just lost it. Like it disappeared, slipped out of my grasp. I did not Mm -hmm. have it, and I kept thinking man it would be nice to have just one character just a, a kind of a lone wolf and lucky seemed to be waiting in the wings like oh you want a lone wolf here i am um i was listening to the radio one day and i heard a some random report about a lottery ticket was about to expire my husband likes to play the lottery it's funny it's like a funny thing about him he's really into like that he'll buy a ticket every week and it's there's always a ticket on our fridge and so his ears kind of perked up and they were talking about this Ticket expiring, and the person had not come through, and it was a huge it was a huge payout. And the speculation was, you know, the person could have died, lost the ticket, or maybe there was a, an arrest warrant, and they needed to stay anonymous. And I latched onto that idea. I was thinking I wanted to get into TV at the time too, because I always am just trying new things. And I thought, ooh, that would be a great show, like an HBO show or some kind of show where a person was on the run for some reason, and they had a winning lottery ticket. But I didn't want to write a dark thriller. I didn't want to write some seedy criminal character. I wanted something that would feel good. So I put it aside. And then honestly, Lucky, one day I was in transit going to visit my mom. I can see it. Like I was taking a bus trip. And Lucky takes a lot of bus trips. And it's it's like she sat down beside me and was like, hey, listen, have I got a story for you? And I started texting my agent by the time I made it to where I was going, I was like, here's the new book. This is the story. And she was like, oh my God, this is, I just, of course you have to write this. Like I am in and I just never looked back. I remember it was April. It could have, it was, you know, maybe two years ago today. Would it be two years or three years? I'm losing track of time. But anyway, it was this time of year. And I don't, I have very little memory of writing lucky of how sometimes I get questions during this tour and I can't answer them because I remember that moment. I remember she arrived and it's almost like she took the wheel.
0: That's a beautiful Mm -hmm. story. Thank you. And as you were telling it, I was, I was, of course, your, your, your cover art is sitting here in front of me (laughs) with the beautiful long red hair of lucky from the back shot that is on the cover. I just pictured her sitting next to you mm-hmm. and whispering it almost in your ear. <gasps> That's wonderful. It's a it's a beautiful book, and I understand that your mama was sick, God rest her soul, when you were writing this, um, and you felt like, if I understand the the backstory of my little bit of research I've done mm-hmm. on you, um, you felt like you. You couldn't, you didn't want to write, but she encouraged you to continue."
1: Yes. And I think encouraged is a very gentle word for it. I think she made me. And funnily <laughs> enough, I want to say, I noticed you, you use mama as the term, and I always called her mama in our private oh, exchanges. So I noticed you said that at the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about your husband and that's yeah. what I called her. And I felt like, you know, I was a grown up woman, but I still like, she was my mama. And that's always what I called her. And we were really, really, really close, um, really good friends in addition to our mother-daughter relationship. And my mom, my mama, but I don't think I can do it without crying. She took huge, huge pride um, in my career. It was such a, she was so, so proud of me. Both of my parents are and and my step-parents. And so, and I think I saw it with my grandmother as well when she was sick and she knew she was on her way out. I think my mom probably knew more than we did, about how things were going to end up. And my grandmother wanted us to all sit down with her and report, like, what was going on in our lives, where we were going, how we were going to survive. And I think that my mom would look at me and think, okay, she's got to keep her career going. This is what she wants. She wants a TV show. I got really close to The Last Resort. Like, how are we going to make this happen? And so she wouldn't allow me to stop writing to the point where she was in hospital and I would come and she would say, you can only come if you bring your laptop and you can only stay if you're working. (laughs) So I would sit beside her hospital bed. And if I stopped typing and sat there looking at her and thinking, this is so sad and horrible, she would wake up and say, I can't sleep if you're just sitting here Thinking about how horrible this is, like, get your book done. So I would work on her, and her, like, I would work on this book, her book. Her surgeon thought it was hilarious. He loved my mom. Everyone loved my mom. So he'd come in it, and out. I, I love
0: your mom, and <laughs> I never had amazing. the blessing of meeting her. But <laughs> I just, just hearing about this, this, this spirited brave, mm-hmm. she's battling cancer in a hospital bed, and she's kind of cracking the whip, if you
1: will, and saying, Hey,
0: Marissa, get to it.
1: Very brave. So incredibly brave. And I think about, I would ask her, are you scared? And her answer would be no. Like, as in what? Like, why would you ask me that? And I'm like, I don't know. You're going to die. That's terrifying. And she was like, I'm not afraid. Like she just was totally fearless. But I think what she was afraid of was leaving us. And she yeah. certainly didn't want my life to fall to pieces because I fell to pieces. So she made me finish this book. I did. She read it, and things have been going really well with Lucky. She is. I wouldn't necessarily say Lucky. Some. She's tough. She's resilient. And this book. She's is brave. Same. Yeah. She's yeah. brave. She's brave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wish I'd had the chance to meet her, Marissa. Me she too. sounds
0: amazing. A character in your book also carries the name of your mom. Mm -hmm. So that was another tribute to her with you finishing the book and her having a chance to read it before she passed.
1: She really enjoyed that. And actually, there's a character at the beginning, a nun named Margaret Jean. That was my grandmother's name who I mentioned at the beginning. So I just, I did that. It's the first time I've I've really done that. And I just thought, you know what, I'm throwing these names in and and it, it felt really good. Well, it's it it
0: it links you to it so inextricably. Mm-hmm. Um there's a there's a visual in some of the research that I did of a picture of you and the day you got married with your mama kissing you on one side. That's what my daughter calls me too is mm-hmm. mama, so it's just kind of a thing, and your grandma kissing you on the other side and you looking at the camera and it's such a beautiful picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, It sounds like you have a long history of brave, strong women in your family, Marissa. Am I right when I say that? I mean,
1: certainly your mom, your mama, but your grandma too? Absolutely. So my grandmother was widowed when my mom was maybe one. Um, Oh. Her husband actually died in a workplace accident. He worked for uh, CP Rail. And it was back then, I mean... To raise a child on your own was an incredibly brave thing to do. She did remarry, um, but she what she went through was really, really difficult. And she was incredibly brave. She became a nurse. She was actually the breadwinner for the family, which is almost unheard of, and raised my mom and three sons and was just the toughest, most resilient woman I've ever met aside from my mom and of course my mom got that from her and and I think in many ways I did too I I feel not quite as brave and resilient as they are but I feel that they disagree and they think that I am it's just that I had them and they really you know I was there I was they babied me a bit so without them I'm like huh sometimes it's hard but I think I'm pretty brave and resilient. I mean, I work pretty hard. So <laughs> oh,
0: absolutely. But also these strong women that they just do it. They model the behavior. So whether you even are aware on a conscious level, it's going into your soul. So mm-hmm. that's how you become who you are. Let's talk about screenwriting. Um, let's talk about Carlton cues. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about how originally, originally, I think in your in in your mind, um, Lucky was going to be a television show. And then it became a book because you knew how to write books. But let's talk about what the future
1: might be with respect to it being optioned. So, yes, and I think those original texts to my agent, I was saying, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write this as a show first. And she was saying, Okay, but Maybe you should try writing a book first because she's my literary (laughs) agent and that's what she does. And of course, my film TV agent, when I pitched it to her, because it's just the one line pitch that every TV agent wants. It's like, can this character redeem her lottery ticket and herself before her time runs out? And she was like, yes, everyone will want this. Um, But it took some convincing for me to turn it into a book. I didn't feel like it was a book. I really, I started writing a pilot, even though I didn't know how to write a pilot. And I do have this terrible pilot lying around somewhere, and but it's it provided me with the setup for the book. So the, those opening scenes with Lucky in the gas station bathroom, and then in the casino, and all of that—it's so visual because I really did envision it and write it first as a script. Um, and then Lucky to me also, I—it's a season one, uh, so it, it was an interesting way to write a book. So no spoilers, but when it ends, it's it's tied up. And yet you're like, where's she going to go now? There are options for her and possibility and she's heading into season two. But nothing really came of it. Like nobody was banging down my door and I was kind of waiting because the last resort actually, I think it was four offers that we had and it ended up being optioned. But then the bottom fell out of the world and covid happened and it was really difficult so i was waiting nobody was calling and then my agent said oh there's some producer he he's interested i can't i can't remember his name and when she finally emailed it to me a few minutes before our Zoom call was scheduled because they had said, she's interested in screenwriting. You guys should talk. And this producer was like, I'm a mentor. I'm really happy to talk to her and see if we can get along. And, and if, if we do, then I'll sign her on as a writer. Maybe it was like 10 or 15 minutes before that call that I Googled the name I had been given and was like... Oh my god, this is Carlton Hughes. Like this is a really big deal. And I think it's this better is a that, big <laughs> <this> is, <laughs> and I think it's better that I didn't have time to really overanalyze anything. We mm-hmm. got on the call. He is and I, I believe if my mom is my guardian angel, I don't believe that she could have picked anyone better. He is the kindest, most generous person i have come across in hollywood and wow. i mean people anyone you that i meet now and i say i'm working with him who has worked with him who knows of him and his team say oh my gosh this is such a stroke of luck he is so kind he's a mentor he's generous he and it's that is all true so i've um we've worked together to develop a pitch for Lucky that we need to take to streamers and network together. So it's it's a done deal as far as he's concerned. We have a studio which is ABC Disney, but now we need to get confirmation of where or if it will actually become a show. Um, I think it's been about six months that I have benefited from his instruction and guidance, as well as his VP of development, a young woman named Emma Foreman, who is a genius as well, kind, the time that they've taken to show me how to do this. So I now know how to do this. I've received a masterclass in screen development for a book. I will never look back no matter what happens. And it's been a huge pleasure. It's been one of the best things that's ever happened to me. It's amazing. Mm -hmm.
0: You had a chance to take a walk with Mr. Yeah. Carlton Cuse okay. in 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 High Park last December in the middle of a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. What have you learned, if you will, through this masterclass, as you call it, which is a perfect way of describing the mentorship, I think?
1: So there are two things that I've learned. And there's something that I've known for a long time that I learned from my mom, that I learned from meeting someone like him, which is honestly, you know, kindness and honesty and is really, and just being a nice person and helping people when you can is a really good way to be. Um, You can just tell when you meet someone like that and his entire team that these are genuine people, they're passionate about what they do, and that shows. And there was a time in my career where I thought, okay, am I being too nice? Like, do I need to like act like a bigger deal than I am? And then people will think I'm a bigger deal. And I realized meeting Carlton that no, like you just, it actually is so much better just to be real and kind and genuine. And the kind of person who, you know, he showed up at my house, we went for a walk in High Park. He loved it. He thought it was fabulous. it was, <laughs> And we had a great chat. We talked about uh, Five Days at Memorial, which is a show he's shooting for Apple TV in Toronto, somehow as we speak. Um, he asked me about novel writing because screenwriters are quite interested in novel writing, just as we are interested in screenwriting. It's a whole interesting. different
0: thing. The cross-pollination of that. I didn't, you always, the grass is greener maybe where right. you figure one might lead successfully to the other one. That's interesting. I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, it was, inter- it was interesting. I will say there was one point we were walking down my street. He's a Californian. It was so cold. And I knew the path I was taking us to would be sheltered. But like he, the wind was blowing and he was kind of looking at me like, uh-oh, this, what, am, what have I gotten myself into? And I was thinking, oh my God, this is going to be awful. He's going to be freezing. But we got onto this lovely path and we had a really great walk and a wonderful conversation. And it was just Something that I will always, a really great memory because I know that there are writers who this would be, I mean, it's enough to have just had an hour of his time just to chat mm-hmm. and walk. But the other thing that I've learned from him is really, like my husband will say, it's all these kicks at the can you're taking. I've done 12 different versions of the same pitch. And Joe, and he'll describe it as just watching me just kick it over and over. And what I've learned from Carlton is really and truly, you have to look at something from all 12 different angles and try it all 12 different ways. Even if there is a point about halfway where you think, I can't do this anymore, I can't. But if you want it badly enough, which I do, I really, really want this, you will just keep kicking it and kicking it and kicking it until you're like, okay, I've done it 12 different ways. I know what doesn't work, but I also know what does work. And it's this sort of intense level of perfectionism that I think is really required to have the kind of career That he has had and also to have been able to take, for example, a show like Lost and make something like that work as well as it did because that show could just as easily have been a complete flop. It was so complicated. There was a huge cast. There were so many things that in the hands of the wrong writers, producers, etc. wouldn't have worked. But this is the kind of person that is like, let's look at it from 12 different ways. Let's drive everyone probably slightly bananas with how many times we're going to look at it, but you get it right. And it's it's a huge lesson for me because I tend to rush through things. I'm like, I want this, I want this, I want this. Here it is, and it's not allowed. You have to get it right. And so
0: the process that's it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. But but when we all consume this material, this content, he also works on uh, uh, lock and key. I think does he mm-hmm. not? Yeah. yeah, that's what he was doing when, when we were when he came here. He was yeah. when when we consume it it. it doesn't it all just seem so perfect and so easy? But it's interesting to take a peek behind the curtain and say, just like Olympic athletes or anybody else who does anything really beautifully and brilliantly, they make it look so simple, but yet it's not.
1: No, not simple. It's a lot of hard work, and it's and the collaboration too. I think there's the, there's a great collaborative spirit, which is why I wanted to do screenwriting because we can all sit down together and talk about it. I'm not alone with it. I mean, sometimes it'll be like you need to do this. Like we did have this conversation where he said you need to make the ending more like the way we were and I was like, "No problem. Only the most like one of the most memorable beautiful moments in cinematic history. I'll do that. No problem." And I got off the call and was like, "What? I can't do that." But then I he was absolutely right and I did it and I did it by myself <laughs> without anybody's help, but but that idea being planted big idea. What was
0: it? What was that? I I read it and I don't remember what it was. The, the, the the pinnacle cinematic moment.
1: In the way we were? Yeah, that's it. That was it.
0: Yes. That's what he was basically referring to. Yes. But I think sometimes we all, we, we, we hate it, but we love it. My executive producer, Rebecca Miskin, who helped and is an incredible force in my life. She pushes. (laughs) <laughs> and and it's like no no it's fine no it can be better mm-hmm. it can be better and then when you when you get somebody who believes in you enough and pushes you hard enough it's amazing where you can go with that right
1: it's very true and we we had a conversation one day too where he was we were on the phone not zoom he was driving down a desert highway which actually made me sad that day because I was sitting at my desk like. Everyone in the US seems to have all this freedom. I'm not driving down a desert highway. All I want is dead it was like, oh, you're just the most interesting person in the world, and here I am. <laughs> and he and he kept cutting out and he said to me, you know, this is pretty good. The pitch is pretty good now. You're doing a lot of really good work, but you don't have any experience as a screenwriter, and the people we are pitching to know that. So I think he said something like, you know, it needs to be 150% perfect. Because it's you. Because you technically don't know how to do this. So you've done a lot of work. Technically, it's good enough. We need to go 50% further. Are you willing to do that? And what I heard was, I won't let you fail, or you're not failing on my watch. Like, this show may not go forward for a million different reasons, but... Here's what I need from you. And that was a really hugely inspiring moment for me in my career. And I think I'll, I'll carry that with me always. And again, it reflects back on my mom because she was the same, right? She was like, get it right. Get it right. Work harder. Really high expectations yeah. of, of me. And you know what? That's what people need sometimes.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, so, Marissa, when does the pitch piece of all this start? If if you're at the 150% mark now. Mm-hmm. What, what, what does that look like? Does it look like you have to do everything virtually because you can't actually go to Hollywood and pitch? Yes,
1: but that is fine with me. I was in Los Angeles January 2020. When was it? Just before the pandemic happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had some pitch meetings about the last resort and different meetings, um, and it was absolutely terrifying. I mean, exhausting and terrifying. And I know I will likely go into pitch meetings in the future in person, but I have no huge problem with the fact that these will be happening from the comfort of my home with like my bedroom just down the hall. So I can go and like lie down and freak out if I need to. <laughs> Scream into a Rather pillow, hug, hug a teddy yes. bear
0: or something afterwards.
1: Yes. So I think these meetings will start happening soon. I am, pro- I'm doing rehearsal right now with Emma, who I mentioned before, um, and soon Carlton, and then we'll do the meetings. And I, I believe, you know, anything can happen. Um, but I think now I need to start believing that it really could happen, that this could, rather than trying to prepare myself for the fact that it might not happen, mm. you know what, this could go forward. And also, while well, at the same time realizing that this process of the past six or seven months has been part of the gift of 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 this entire thing so even if this particular incarnation of lucky doesn't go forward i have this experience under my belt and uh it's pretty cool so it feels like you have to envision it Mm -hmm. almost
0: right so that if you envision it that positive energy that the universe will bring it to you so you start believing in it that's that's fabulous
1: i think so I think it'll make a great show too. I really do. Oh. I mean, I do. I know it's my baby. I know I'm the mama of Lucky, but I think this is TV we need: the strong con artist like Beth Harmon playing chess, but like actually a con artist doing bad things, but for good reasons. Mm-hmm.
0: So, Marissa, when you're when you're nervous, let's say when you were in in LA in January 2020, or just generally. What do you personally do to get, get through that? Uh, do you have some tricks that you would be willing to share about we all get scared mm-hmm. um, of something, especially in a professional situation
1: when there's so much on the line? What, what do you do? Okay. So now I actually feel a little lump in my throat because what I did when I was in LA and any other time was I would call my mom, of course. And I remember sitting in Century City Mall when one big meeting had been canceled and I called my mom and I was like, this meeting has been canceled. And just, you know, that's just par for the course in LA. You get bumped, moved around. And, and then she was, she was so reassuring and I felt so much better after the call. And then as soon as we got off the phone, the meeting was back on. (laughs) So I would just call her and, you know, things would happen. So I can't do that anymore. But I also have to remember that the things she would say were not like, it was just like, you can do this. I believe in you. They are lucky to have you. And I received some really great uh, advice from Stan Zimmerman, who was involved with Gilmore Girls recently, who said, you know what? You have to remember, they actually do need you. You don't need, like, this is, you're the... the, the person here with the idea. You've got this all in your head and you just have to tell them what's in your head. So I'm going to read those words that he emailed to me before those meetings. And I think the other thing is we all get scared, but you can't actually think about it too much. So like talking about going to the call with Carlton and not really thinking about it too much. Like sometimes I think I almost on purpose, like not, not preparing, but not over preparing. So I'm ready, but I'm also not sitting there for an hour In front of my computer, ready to go, working myself into a frenzy. Like, you just live your life, you do what you need to do, make sure the kids are okay, make sure the cat is fed and the door is closed, and then you just jump off the edge of the cliff into the water. It's like, just, you just do it. Then there's, that's the only way to do it, is to just go through your fear and don't listen to that voice in your head. Mm -hmm. And if he shows up the day of this important meeting, you really just have to just be very firm and use expletives and just be like, get that, you know, get out of here. Yeah. You are not welcome. And that's something that if you need to do work around that, um, you know, therapy is a good idea. Talking to friends because that voice can take over, and if you let it, it can really destroy your dreams. And I don't it know sure why. Can. Like, why do we? Ha- I don't know why those voices exist. And I feel we all have them. That that jerky. Sort Definitely. Of you Definitely, this. Yeah. I think it's
0: um, a flight or fight kind of situation. Way, mm-hmm. way, 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 way back, and and I know there's scientific brain science around this, but I think it's the lizard brain that when we don't know what's going to happen, or we're going into something that we perceive as maybe scary and dangerous, your the that lizard brain pulls you back off the edge of the cliff because they don't want you to get that lizard doesn't want to get you to get hurt. Mm-hmm. Yet, yeah. the best, I some line, somebody said, uh, the biggest accomplishments that we ever have as a human race are just on the other side of fear. Exactly. So, yeah, you do have to go into a bathroom, and certainly I have done it, yell at this voice to tell it to go away so that you can just be yourself and clear it out of the room. And that's where the open, honest, don't worry about acting like you're a bigger deal than you really are that's what people want and love and cherish. So it is a two-way street when you're going through these pitch interviews. You'll have to keep us posted and let us know how it goes, please.
1: And you know, I feel I've learned something here from you, even just saying it's the lizard brain and, and the fear, maybe not even like get the hell out of here, but uh, but something like, I know you're scared. I understand why you're scared, but we're okay. You know what? You don't have to be afraid. And then let's just do this.
0: And I think that some of the, uh, I can't remember, um, Gabor Mate, perhaps, who's written Hungry Ghosts and and a few other really interesting books will say that the therapy that they generally prescribe around people that have these very loud voices around you can't do it, you're a failure, don't even try, is to literally sit down in a room with that voice and have a conversation with that voice and bring it down to you know why don't you think I can actually do it? And 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 as 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 out there as that all sounds, apparently it's a thing. So you're right, getting that voice and wrangling it to a point where you can say, "Look, come with me. We're going to give this a yeah. shot." Is the right way to get the lizard on your side, as opposed to um, feeling like he's going to pull you back from the edge when you really do need to jump off. Mm-hmm. So, Marissa, did you did you start off in your world of of elementary school, high school, university, wanting to write? Was it something that you were, you, you kind of, right from the get-go, you loved, you enjoyed, it was a passion?
1: Always. Okay. So always, always. And I think that on one hand, it's a really good thing to have always known that you want to do something, but it's really odd to have, um, you start to feel like your your life path is a bit preordained and then of course I would take wrong turns almost on purpose in my 20s like I'm not going to do this I'm going to like move to the Dominican and work at a hotel or I'm going to try other things because my dad um was a newspaper writer my granny Maggie who's married to Ray Stapley uh was a writer as well my my grandfather Ray was a syndicated columnist for the Toronto Star uh, it was an automotive column and he had a book called the car and Sorry, Car Owner's Manual, and it was a Canadian bestseller. Wow. And I remember going into a bookstore in the West End where I live when I first moved here, a used bookstore, and it was on the shelf. Now, this is a car owner's manual from the 70s. And I said to the proprietor, why do you have this? And he said, oh, because it's really well written. I just thought I'd put it on the shelf. And it just it felt like this sign to me that I was where I needed to be. But it also reminded me, like, this is in my heritage. And everyone would say to me, you have the writing gene. You, mm. ha- you know, you're going to be a writer. So I knew that I wanted to do it. I took steps to do it. I I, went, I worked at my the newspaper my dad worked at. I was a co-op student. I took over for him when he went on vacation. I went to journalism school. I became a journalist, magazine editor, freelance writer, and then kind of around, I guess, 30. I think I was 30. I was pregnant with my second child, and I thought, wait a minute, I haven't written that book. I always said I would. Everyone mm. said I was going to do it, but it hasn't, like how do i do that and so i sat down to do it and it was so much work i you were in, when you sit down to do that thing that you've always thought you were going to do, that you've convinced yourself and everyone else has convinced you, you're born to do, and you're going to be so good at it. I mean, I think you can see where I'm going here. Like, <laughs> yeah. you you start writing, and I you're like, like, "Oh what? my, what do <laughs> I, I do? This is really yes. bad. What do I do? My voice in my own mind does not sound like my voice on the page." And this, I think, any aspiring writers or new writers listening will will be nodding along, going, "This is exactly it." Like, what you think you're going to sound like isn't what you're you're going, what you sound like. And actually your first attempts at writing a book will be bad. Hmm. And that's okay. I mean, look, I believe every single writer's first attempts at writing a book were bad. Like early drafts of any writer you can think of probably have been burned because they were not good. You, But you have to do it. You just have to do it. And that's, it's a process. It's like jumping and talking yourself out of the fear you will um you will learn from that first draft i learned from the first book i wrote which did not get published although it did get sold the publisher went out of business and then the second book i wrote was written from a place of desperation it was terrible really i can say that like <laughs> nothing salvageable it was really bad it was desperate writing and then i wrote mating for life and that was a very good book because i had already written two and because it was I knew, you know, and I'm, it just, it all came together after that, but it was so much work, so much trying and failing, and it, of course, it was not at all how I imagined it through my whole life, thinking, mm. well, as soon as I write my first brilliant book, everything will just all come together because I am a literary genius. I, mean, <laughs> well, I The whole because... <laughs> world expects me to be. And so of course I <laughs> right. am. So, <laughs> right. So yeah. Um, but so it's funny. I think I really, I answered that in a very uh, long roundabout way, but you know, I always wanted to do it, but that did not help me. I mean, yeah. I think it's more my friends who are lawyers or other things where they were like, I knew I wanted to be a writer and then I did it. And it was this great, um, unexpected twist in my life. What a pleasant surprise. Whereas I was like, oh God, what if I fail at this? I This is the only thing that I've ever trained myself to do. Understood. So. I have a list of things you've done um, that have nothing to do with mm. writing. So when you
0: were talking, Marissa, about, <laughs> I just kept taking turns because maybe I didn't really think or want to go down the path that it was obvious I was going to go down. So I've got Stable hand, bartender, tropical resort destination rep, sports reporter, cemetery gardener, television listings writer, band roadie, and beauty magazine editor.
1: That's Mm -hmm. right. So a lot of the more fun stuff like band roadie and... Well, and weird stuff like Cemetery Gardener. Those were sort of high school, university things. Um, But yes, I mean, I tried. I was a sports reporter. I wanted to be the next Catherine Humphreys. I don't know why. I don't even really like sports, to be honest with you. I don't know. I really don't know why. I think I like sports writing. Um, And then the magazine editor was kind of when I started to realize how hard it would be to be a novelist and how difficult it would be to make a living. So yeah, I tried absolutely everything and then really i can't do anything else i mean screenwriter yes but it's i think it's a natural progression but um this is what i'm i was meant to do so i feel grateful that i managed to take something that i felt was preordained and even when i realized it was going to be an impossible amount of work and like practically break me several times just keep going Fantastic. And there are so many
0: people in the world who I think don't, don't get to do that or or don't ever figure out what their real passion is, or if they figure out what their real passion is, somehow it's not uh, acceptable or not supported, or it's not a thing that you feel like you could really do as a money making type of career thing. And, and, They go into their old age and they're very unhappy and unsatisfied Mm -hmm. because it's – you have to. You're drawn to it. It's like you're born to it. And finally being able to do it is so satisfying, right?
1: I absolutely – I think so. And I mean, I feel – that when you go into later life not having tried, you're right, it would be very unsatisfying and probably quite depressing and very easy to think it's too late. Yes, I really don't agree with that. I mean, I know debut novelists who wrote their first novel, Marnie Jackson, I think it's Jackson, wrote a novel called Don't I Know You. She was a journalist and her first novel in her 70s. Um, I know many debut novelists who are Older, and I think that it was the Writers Trust who just changed the debut novelist age requirement for um, their their prize. And funding, um, because it was something like you you had to be under a certain age. I think we're we're that's starting to fall away. I'm glad, and I hope so. Because how sad. I mean, if I hadn't figured this out until now, and I was like, oh my god, I'm 42, I haven't written the novel, I would hate the way I I was feeling, and I would feel (gasps) hopeless and and like um, flailing around a bit. And You know, I've sacrificed a lot and been in a lot of dark places because of my relentless commitment to this goal. Sometimes I wonder if it was the best thing. Everything worked out. Everything is fine because I have a very supportive husband and a very supportive family and because everyone believed in me. But, you know, it's hard. It's not an easy path. So if you do give up, I mean, I could have probably given up and, and be in a very good position working as a librarian or something like that. And that would be okay, too. So it's also okay to be like, I can't throw anything else after this. I have to find something Mm -hmm. that will sustain me in another way. Um, It's a tough one. Making a living as a creative person is a wonderful, amazing, great thing to do. And it's, I swear to God, it's almost impossible. Like, it's so difficult. So this joy that I find in writing, there are moments I think, damn it, if I'd only just let it stay a hobby. (laughs) like, I just, (laughs) I probably. And I I'm like I don't know I'm not contradicting myself. I'm happy that I do what I do, but I'm telling you it was a mountain to climb and it it remains a mountain that I climb every day. So
0: Well, thank you for doing that yeah. climbing work because you're you are gifted and you are from the reading world. I mean, you've been translated into 8 languages around the world globally. Am I right? I don't know
1: if it's maybe Yes, maybe. Eight. I tried to count the other day for my dad, which was cute. Um, I know it's thirteen different countries and territories, so which is great. And that's and that actually came at a moment when I thought I would give up. I applied to become a librarian and did you really uh, go to school right? Just when things to do when it's raining was coming out, I thought I can't do this anymore. My debut novel was not a New York Times bestseller. I did not make a million dollars. I was not making a living, and. I do think that the universe would not allow me to give up because all of a sudden there was some crazy auction in Germany of all places. They wanted the book. They gave me enough money to work for a few more years. And then a lot of European countries just jumped on board with Things to Do When It's Raining, which was a very quiet novel. There's no hook. I can't even really explain without... Falling all over myself, what exactly it is about, other than a family saga, and it just saved me, and it made me kind of like the way my mom makes me makes me keep writing. It made me. It didn't let me become a librarian. It didn't let me give up. Um, I love that story. Thank you for sharing <laughs> it. I've got a. I've got a quote that I put here.
0: Let me just find it, which is from um, Hemingway. Because you just brought up your family and the Hemingway quote goes as, and I can't find it, it's up on my wall somewhere, but it's the most troubling childhoods prepare you for the most interesting storytelling or lives or you say openly, I think, Marissa, that you didn't have um, a troubled childhood, but it was complicated and um, could could we talk about that a little bit? And did that help you in terms of how you ended up going into the, well, not ended up, how you became preordained to become a writer?
1: <laughs> you know, it's funny because I know the article you're talking about, and I always regretted that because my dad brought it up once. He's oh, like, oh, no. you and your complicated childhood. Oh, no. Because that was the headline. And I, I mean... I, I feel it wasn't tr- troubled, as you said. I mean, my parents split up when I was quite young and remarried and blended families. And that's what I think I mean by complicated. Got and it. also, you know, just my parents were um, unique people and the product of the 60s and 70s. And at one point, we were very involved in the church. And, you know, at another point, we were not. And so just really a lot of material there, for writing, I now realize, as I get older and i 'm a parent, that also they were just doing their best, and actually they were doing a really good job and um, so i 'm not that I was unforgiving, but I think I was more at a stage in my life when I gave that interview when I was grappling with it and thinking man like this this was complicated, mm-hmm. and this wasn 't easy, and I wish you know sometimes things had been a little easier, but you 're right it provides Um, a depth of understanding of human nature and particularly what I understand is that situations are not black and white, that people are people and people will let you down. And also they won't. And if we're expecting the people we love to never falter, to never make mistakes, then we are going to be incredibly disappointed. And I really think that that helps me explore my character's in a in a very unique way, it means that even if my characters are making mistakes, I really feel my readers always understand why. Yes, because I understand why. Yes, and I'm not judgmental, so I am not judging any of my characters harshly. And I think it all comes from the kind of upbringing I had.
0: Well, it, and it's um, it's so relatable. I mean, nobody has the fairy tale life, although. You know, yeah, I'm I'm divorced and married for a second time. And my kids, mm-hmm. when they were really, really young, all they wanted was a quote-unquote family. Like mm-hmm. the way it appears on a brochure cover. Mom, dad, and two kids all
1: holding hands, skipping down a beach together. It... it Sorry. It doesn't, no, it doesn't exist. And I think, I wonder now what, what kind of effect social media will have on our kids. This whole, you know, we're presenting our sanitized, perfect lives to everyone. I really, really struggle with that. Like, I, I have great moments with my my family. And in fact, we've had some great moments during the pandemic of togetherness. We've had some absolutely awful moments too i mean this year we lost my mom she wasn't just my mama she was nana to the kids and extremely important to them so so i hesitate to ever really be like here we are you know whatever we're doing this wonderful dinner because it doesn't reflect the whole picture and i don't want people to think well i mean look at them why am i so miserable Mm -hmm. when you're just you know eating by candlelight and playing word games at dinner um but yeah, I mean, we all want this. It has always been thus, this whole fairy tale of the perfect family. And no one has it. I don't believe that anyone does. Nope. no,
0: nope. so, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. And it's kind of goes down to the, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, but but at the time it's like, Oh God, why am I having to go through all this? And why mm-hmm. can't I be just like the family skipping down the beach on the brochure? Mm-hmm. But ultimately it provides you with great learning and 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 a great perspective. And if you can figure out how to use it going mm-hmm. forward, then then you can help people with it, which I think is so fantastic.
1: And I think what we're all going through collectively right now with the pandemic, I mean, I truly hope we can all figure out a way to use it. Yes. Somehow, right? And yes. that it actually can make us stronger rather than kill us and not make us um, try to not deal with it too. Like, try to just move forward and pretend it never happened. Yeah. It'll be interesting. I think that I was talking about my, with my son yesterday, we had a little walk during one of our perfect family moments. <laughs> my 14-year-old agreed to go for a walk with me, and I'm a perfect mother, and I have a perfect life. And look at that snapshot of a perfect... Earlier. Yeah, <laughs> but he'd been screaming at me and I at him just an hour before. Yes, of course. Um, I said, you know, I think we're going to have a really hard time talking about this a few years from now. Like, it will be, we'll have tears. I think it'll be a tough thing to talk about. It just seems like we're just staying home and nothing too awful is happening to some of us but actually it is awful and we will need to talk about it yes and use it in some way yes even though I do not want to read a pandemic novel or watch a pandemic tv show I'm just putting that out there (laughs) yeah (laughs) of course no thank you (laughs) but you know what
0: it's it's I hope we can I hope we can carry the gifts of this and and I think the gifts of this at least for me personally are things like I look forward to going out into the back garden and refilling the bird feeders and seeing, you know, how many birds have come and what types and things that would just be a blur in the busy life of the non-pandemic world, like I've oh, got to get to the airport, I've got to get on a plane, blah, blah. But you have none of it. So you mm-hmm. absolutely have to focus on the tiniest little things that will bring you joy. And I hope we can hang on to those things because those things are so important. I agree. I
1: wholeheartedly agree.
0: There is a bar in the West End of Toronto called Famous Last Words Cocktail Bar. Mm-hmm. I did not know this until I started researching you, Marissa, but there is now a drink named after your book Lucky. Can, we, can you maybe just give me the top line of what goes into that magnificent cocktail?
1: Yes. And when things open up again, I would highly recommend everyone who can, who lives in Toronto or nearby to go to Famous Last Words. Uh, It's a literary cocktail bar. All the cocktails are named after books. My favorite is the Everyone Brave is Forgiven, which is after one of my favorite novels by Chris Cleave gin-based. And um, so I've met the um, Marlene Thorne, who runs Famous Last Words. So I just sent her a message and said, you know, I have to do an online launch. I just, I'm trying to make it special. Do you think you could come up with a cocktail? And she said, oh, absolutely. I'd love to. And so she did. It's um, champagne or sparkling wine, which is consumed in the book in rather copious amounts at the beginning. Yes. Gin, which I love. uh, Grapefruit juice. And that Saint Germain elderflower liqueur, and it's very good. I Real bet. Little time it's- sprig, and it's um, this beautiful pink color, which looks the, like it really matches the cover of the book. And I highly recommend it. And if you want to turn it into a mocktail, just take out a the booze. syrup, yeah. grapefruit juice, and sparkling water. So it's resilient and adaptable as well. And <laughs> just like
0: Lucky, which is so just fantastic. like Lucky yourself. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to ask uh, two more things um, okay. and one of them is about chick lit mm-hmm. and how it is a really big thing, except you have a quote about, I want there to be less, I think it's your quote, Marissa, I want there to be less shame associated with women's fiction, with chick literature, chick lit. Um, and. Also, your, your literary agent, I think, feels exactly the same way. Samantha Haywood talks about how, why does women's literature have to go to Europe and be acclaimed over there before the Canadian public actually gives a damn about it?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I find it, I'm, it's very frustrating. I, I feel that I've let it go to a certain extent because there's only so long you can kind of bang your head against the same wall. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why uh, fiction written by a woman is called women's fiction, and fiction written by a man is called fiction. I I really don't understand that. I really bristle at the question, what kind of books do you write, Marissa, or what kind of because I mean, it's not a thriller, it's not a you know, I'm and I'll just say it's it's just fiction. And right. um it's it's a tough one for me. It's a tough and it doesn't really necessarily change all that much, even though we've come really far, we've understood certain things about um, the fact that, you know, chiclet, for example, is not a term that's used anymore. So now, but now it's rom-com. But I can tell you, it's still, it's still treated the same way. It's still marketed just for women. There are still women on the cover. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a woman on the cover of Lucky too, but I think Lucky really is not just For women, and it hasn't really been called women's fiction, except if you look on Amazon, it says domestic fiction. And I said to my husband, like, that's weird, unless they mean domestic, like, because I'm Canadian, and it comes from Canada. But Uh. I think what they might mean is... Women's fiction to do I with hope the domestic. Not. Oh, I and hope not. It just it is frustrating, and I don't know how to solve it. Although I think that I started that conversation when I first started publishing in Canada, and I believe that it's a conversation that a lot of Canadian writers have picked up. Yeah, and it's something that's talked about uh, quite frequently, and so maybe that's the first step. But really, it is profound. I find it borderline enraging how you know tom parada writes about uh, a mother who develops a porn addiction and it's just like everyone falls all over themselves this is so brilliant but if i wrote that it would be treated so differently and yeah i'm not saying that you know it, tom parada is not a brilliant writer but so are many female authors who are relegated to this domestic fiction sphere because they're writing about the exact same things it's not fair and it's not cool. No. <laughs> and I don't. And I it, see so. <laughs> when, when we talk
0: about it, I totally can see that why there's shame associated mm-hmm. with it because it's not fair and it's not cool.
1: Okay. No, it's not. And it needs to change. So I hope it does. And I, but I think it starts with on a lot of levels, but you know, it does start with the publisher. It starts in marketing. I love yeah. my publisher. I love marketing, but, and I know they're doing what they have to do. But I also know that it, Does sometimes perpetuate it so Mm -hmm. but publishing is having a bit of a moment of reckoning right now in terms of diversity and the way they do things so I'm hoping that this will be one of the topics on the table too
0: I hope so too I Mm -hmm. really really do last question then Marissa before we we offer you the opportunity here of shameless promotion for this (laughs) wonderful work of art that you've produced Muskoka your dad used to rent a you never owned a cottage in Muskoka Oh, don't we wish we did now because no. it would be worth billions yeah um, but you went to a cottage in Muskoka and when I when I learned that in my research and he, he would your family would rent in the summers I thought of you in this bunk bed with a flashlight reading oh yeah was it a place that that helped you cultivate the creative spirit was it a place you carry nice memories about is it I just had to ask about the cottage
1: so, absolutely. And I think if, in so many different ways, Muskoka served to inspire my writing. It inspired the cottage setting in Mating for Life, which is actually modeled after my brother-in-law's cottage, which my family has spent a lot of time at. Um, and we would rent cottages when I was a kid. We also would go to lodges, like we'd go to Lumina Lodge or Cedar Grove. And that, I think, more than anything, inspired the things to do in its raining setting of the inn, And just helped me when I needed it most with writing my second novel. Second novels are hard Um, for some reason. They just are. They're just, they're difficult and frightening in a weird way, Mm -hmm. more frightening than debuts because people are waiting for them. Um, But absolutely. I think that this, this idea of we would always leave the city or the town where we were living. We would always go to water and relax and rest and I would just be reading. I mean, I was a super bookish, actually very shy, quiet, geeky child, always reading a book, um, always reading something way above what you would think someone my age would be reading and having all these big ideas. And what better place, like what can contain all that than a lake? You know, you just kind of flip oh. and you're reading a prayer for Owen Meany when you're 13 and you're like, oh my God, I'm just going to jump off the dock and clear my head for a minute. It's this perfect. is so much, right? Yeah, it's so. perfect. Yeah.
0: Lumina Lodge we share. I took my kids there when they were teeny tiny and no it way. is it's something right out of Dirty Dancing, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. yeah mm-hmm. And just, I arrived, I'd never been there before. And my little kids that, God bless my kids, mm-hmm. they would not go to the little children's program, the Petticoat Junction that they yeah. would have every Petticoat day. Petticoat
1: Junction, oh gosh. So many names. Um,
0: Because no, they wanted, they wanted to stay with me. So mm-hmm. I didn't get as much reading done as I wanted, but they would eventually drop dead of exhaustion because they did everything all mm-hmm. day. And it, it, there's nothing like that. Old school, lodge, wood, lake, perfect mm-hmm. reading place.
1: So perfect. perfect. And place. so, I mean, I think about Lumina often. I think about a friend I met there. I think about the crush we had on this guy, Mark, who made milkshakes at the snack bar. And he, <laughs> we would go and get a milkshake. And I think, it, you know, the complicated childhood, but also these idyllic moments mm. that will provide endless inspiration And I, you know, give the same to my children. We also spend as much time at cottages as we can. That's the big dream. That's why I really want Lucky to get off the ground TV show-wise, because I want that Muskoka Cottage, damn it. Like, (laughs) that's what I want. It's all I want.
0: (laughs) Fabulous. I'm going to ask you one last question. I I understand you have a dossier or a folder full of ideas, Mm -hmm. because there's perhaps a fear, maybe it's gone, maybe it's still there, that you might run out of ideas. But what's your process? Is there a process? Because as you've just released Lucky in Canada this April 6th, and I understand it's December 7th in the United States this year. Mm -hmm. What's what's now? Like, what's next? What's the process? How do you go there?
1: So things are a little different now. I think in the past, I would have been well on my way with another... Novel. I would have started that novel that I wasn't writing, and I would be probably at least through a first draft. Because of what's happening with the TV development, and and that's taken up a lot of my my headspace. I'm still really firmly with Lucky. I'm working on that. I actually am writing rom coms with a friend, um, Karma Brown. So we we have we're a pseudonym Maggie Knox. We've got a, a holiday rom-com coming out with Penguin in October called The Holiday Swap. It's just fun. Oh, it's nice. kind of our response to like, okay, we are women, you know, chicklet rom-com, whatever. We're just going to do it. We don't care anymore about being taken seriously. We just want to have fun. And then we'll be taken seriously with our other writing. Yeah. So there's yeah. that. So I'm working on that. And then and then it's a pandemic and my kids are here and I need to have yes. a little time. So so that is a different it's different this year. But normally um yeah, I would just not necessarily go to that folder, but that folder almost exists in my head where I I can think of those three maybe ideas that I can't seem to set down and think okay, wh- which one am I going to pursue. But here's the thing, I will pursue like I'm not casual about it, and I should be. I, Lauren Groff is a favorite author of mine, and she once tweeted about how she circles ideas and follows them down a path for a while and stays at her, keeps her distance. And I was like, hmm, yeah, no, I just go chasing after the idea, grab it, tackle it to the ground, and like give it a kiss <laughs> on the lips. <laughs> and
0: then, perfect
1: and so that means i'll get 40,000 words into a new idea and be like oh no nope, no like this is wrong this is not a book and then i'll back out of it and do something else and i'm okay with that that's just it's not perfect it's but it's that's just how i operate i'm going through oh it.
0: and it shouldn't be perfect it's messy
1: yeah it's messy and and fantastic
0: mm-hmm. marissa this has been beyond delightful, and thank you for reminding me of the Lumina Lodge. <laughs> how how can our listeners connect with you, and how can our listeners support you and the wonderful work that you're doing?
1: I mean... Well, you know the for the Giller Prize, uh, Jack Rabinovich always would say, "For the price of dinner in this town, you can get one. Of, you can buy these books of the nominated authors. I'm not nominated for the Giller, but you know, for the price of a pizza, you could buy Lucky. So, and it's the same kind of thing. You know, support local restaurants. It would. It's it, it's hugely valuable to authors for people to buy their books, especially now more than ever. Yeah. To call their local bookstore and say, "Can you get this book in?" to talk about it if they love it, to friends, recommend it to friends, and help spread the word because things are difficult now. But even at the best of times, it's tough to promote a book and get the word out there. So just reading and and uh, supporting that way, and and posting a review online, if that's something that you do, that also does help. Good review <laughs> helps, of course. Of and course. Um, you know, and I can be found on on Instagram and Twitter at Marissa Stapley. And I'm I'm there's you know I'm always happy to hear from from readers, and I try to to respond as much as I can. I have signed book plates here at home, so if everyone, anyone buys it and would love for a signed book plate to be sent to them, they can always contact me via Instagram oh, and I'll do that. I'm, you know, I'm trying to find little tiny ways of bringing joy into people's lives.
0: Absolutely. That's a big thing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be, I'll be sending you a note. All right. To have a signed book plate. i love it. <laughs> and please come back, Marissa, Chris, now you've got me on the edge of my chair regarding Carlton Cues and how your pitches are going. And so I feel like In a few months' time, maybe, depending on how things are going for you, we would love to have you come back and and check in and talk about
1: how it's all going and when you're going to be on Netflix. (laughs) I would love that. You have a deal. No matter what, I will come back and tell you about about that process. Okay.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much. It was just a delight. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.